Before we get started, we'd like to thank our Patreon supporters and remind listeners that as a nonprofit, we rely on your help to keep making Big Biology. To support us, please consider making a monthly donation through our Patreon page at patreon.com bigbio. You can also make a one-time contribution at bigbiology.org. Another way to help us is to recommend Big Biology to a friend or family member or spread the word on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We want to share these ideas with as many people as possible, and growing our audience will ensure Big Biology episodes keep coming. It also helps if you subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and to comment on and rate our show. And of course, if you want to hear a particular guest or an episode on your favorite topic, just let us know. You can get in touch with us on our social media pages or through our website. And now, here's the show. An itinerant selfish gene says, Bodies of plenty I've seen. You think you're so clever, but I'll live forever. You're just a survival machine. Those witty words belong to Richard Dawkins, one of the 20th century's most influential thinkers in evolutionary biology. Dawkins wrote that limerick in 1976 to capture the main point of his book, The Selfish Gene. Probably no other idea has resonated throughout biology more than Dawkins' claim that the essence of evolution is the striving by genes to be represented in future generations. From this principle, he writes, everything in biology follows, from the migrations of Tony Sinclair's wildebeest from the last Big Biology episode, to the visual systems of Adriana Briscoe's butterflies in episode 69, to Joe Parker's rove beetles pretending to be ants in episode 29. Today's guest, Arvid Ogren, an evolutionary biologist and Venergren fellow at Uppsala University, is a major advocate of the selfish gene idea, and he just published a new book called A Gene's Eye View of Evolution. To Arvid, quote, the history of life is a struggle between competing selfish genes. He thinks quite literally the organisms alive today are the outcomes of uncountable competitions among different genetic variants. The vast majority of the genetic losers have disappeared into the void, and only the special few that found themselves in sufficiently good survival machines are around for us to see today. As fans of our show will recognize, Marty and I don't really subscribe to this framework. To us, the genes I view misses too many key life processes, including things like niche construction, phenotypic plasticity, agency, allometry, pleiotropy, homeostasis, and the origins of life. As Nick Lane argued in episode 49, the most likely first step to life was the appearance of a sustained energy metabolism loop. If early life didn't use genes, should our current best theory in biology be based on them? But before we go too far, we'd like to say that despite our differences with Arvid, this was a great and useful conversation. He's a thoughtful and engaging guy, and the book is a genuine pleasure to read. We didn't often agree, but we think we covered some important ground. And Arvid himself acknowledges that the genes I view often elicit strong emotions both for and against and that the literature on it has become convoluted and difficult for the average biologist, armchair or otherwise, to parse. He also makes some great points about knowing your history, and that by understanding how and why genes I view is developed can make it a better tool for understanding evolution. For instance, the genes I view is great at helping track and understand the epidemiology of novel SARS-CoV-2 variants, including the new Omicron version detected earlier this week. In this system, there are clear links between genetic variation in the virus and functional ability to affect hosts in the forms of viral infectivity and transmissibility. We can use genetic variation to manage our disease risk, and we should. However, part of our conversation with Arvid focuses on the idea of unification in biology via the concept of adaptation. Arvid contends that the selfish gene idea provides that unifying power. In his book, he wrote about how Ronald Fisher, one of the major architects of the modern synthesis, anticipated selfish gene thinking and leaned on it heavily in his work on adaptation. Fisher claimed that adaptation is the defining feature of the world, 
We agree completely, but there's an important difference between his and our conceptions of adaptation. He advanced biology in fundamental ways by linking variation in genes to variation in phenotypes before we really knew much about what genes are, much less how they worked. Now we know better, and we think it's time to adjust our models to reflect how genes and many, many other factors together influence the variation on which natural selection acts. If we study adaptation as a process consisting of important phenomena both within and between generations, biological unification should be possible. Marty, I opened by reading Dawkins' 1976 limerick. You've got a response, right? Yes, I do. You're just a simple gene. Your power over biology, obscene. You do little work, really just a quirk. Life's causes involve a team. <laughs> I'm Art Woods. <laughs> and I'm Marty Martin. And this is Big Biology. So corny. <laughs> okay, so um, Arvid, let's jump into it. Uh, Arvid, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Um, it's great to have you on. Uh, thanks for for sharing your your book, um, Gene's Eye View of Evolution. It's going to be the the crux of the conversation today. And before we get into it, can you tell us a little bit about your background as a scientist and evolutionary biologist and interested in the pathway that led you to, to writing this book? Yeah, first of all, thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be part uh, uh, of this uh, conversation. Uh, so I'm an evolutionary biologist by, by training. Uh, did my PhD working on kind of population and comparative genomics. Uh, been primarily interested in uh, the kind of evolution of genomic conflicts and the biology of selfish genetic uh, elements. And I've been interested in how and why uh, genomic conflicts arise, but in perhaps in particular, what they can tell us about uh, social evolution or the evolution of conflict cooperation more generally. So how our empirical insights from studying uh, genomic conflicts, how that they fit into our more general models of, of social evolution. And it was also that interest that led me into kind of a fascination with these more conceptual questions, questions about the, the units and levels of uh, selection and, and kind of other questions that lie in this kind of territory, just in between theoretical biology and the, and the philosophy of uh, biology. And in many ways, that's how I came into the, uh, the gene side view. Um, and the book itself kind of grew out of my interest in, in this debate, and in particular, the fascination that here you have a way of thinking about evolution that has had an enormous influence on both professional biologists and on lay people. And among both groups, it has amassed strong supporters and really fierce critics. And I was kind of interested in why is that? Why is it that when you walk up to one colleague at a conference and you say you're, you're interested in a dean's view, they say, well, you know, that has been settled. That is the received view. And everyone knows that. And then you walk up to, to, to another colleague and they say, well, you know, that was, this is proven in the 70s. It's been refuted ever since. And everyone knows that. <laughs> uh, so I kind of was interested in... in, in Who are these everyone's? Uh, yeah. <laughs> why, why is that? Why is it that uh, this, this kind of way of thinking continues to uh, attract uh, these kind of strong, strong uh, emotions? And I wasn't kind of wanted to write a book because I realized that this is a really... A sprawling uh, literature that has kind of grown around this debate and it's been played out for almost half a century. Um, so it's a really sprawling thing that can be quite hard to navigate, which I think is kind of partly why people tend to, what I think, have a rather un or unnuanced view 
uh, on on the state of affairs. And I kind of was, I was out of I, so kind of combination of that fascination with the the disparate views and a frustration that it was hard to yeah, to navigate yeah. that this this book project uh, grew, grew out of. I, I think I think you answered uh, my next question, which is why why write a book as opposed to something else? Um, but you know, maybe it's worth articulating what that something else might have been. I mean, the, it seems like the other approach would be to do something empirical in the lab, do you know the critical sets of experiments that somehow convince one side or the other. So so why go the route of a book rather than the route of experiments? Yeah, so that's partly, I think, because I think that the genes I view occupies a rather a peculiar position in theoretical biology. It's not a straightforward empirical hypothesis, though it can certainly help us come up with such. It's not a kind of all-encompassing general mathematical framework, though it can certainly inspire us to come up with more formal kinds of models. Instead, it is a kind of way of thinking, a way of kind of looking at the world. And I think that it was a from a, a, a kind of desire to figure out like when that works and how when it really comes to its own as a perspective and when it doesn't. And what is it that, why some people think that the sacrifices that you make for this perspective to work are worth it and why some people think that the sacrifice you make are so unbearable. Yeah, I, I see. So, so you're saying it's a it's a kind of a point of view or a framework for thinking rather than a, a hypothesis per se that's going to produce empirically testable things di- directly. So I think I think I think it is a framework that is very good at coming up with certain kinds of uh, predictions. So the way I like to phrase it, I think is a tremendously powerful tool to think about biology. But like any other tool. You must understand what this tool was designed to do, uh, and, and, and if, by, if you can understand that, what, it, what is it for? Uh, and this is why I think it's really under, important. I spend a lot of time in the book trying to understand where did this perspective come from? What is the intellectual milieu out of which it grew? What does it take to be the central problem that a theory revolution must be able to explain? So I think if you can kind of have that on board, it gets easier to kind of, I think, get the use the strength of the perspective and kind of also be mindful of the um, its, its weaknesses, which which it certainly comes yeah. with. No, that's a really nice distinction. Yeah, good. Yeah, that's a, that's a that's a useful way to think about things. I think we're going to come back to that perspective, and uh, you know, uh, the, I, I think obviously to folks that have listened to the show, Art and I are let's say skeptical about the genes I view, and um, we've we've talked about that offline a little bit. I'm interested, before we dig into the, the book, though, a little bit more about your background, about how you came to do this. It, it was one of the first statements, if not the first statement in the book, where you wrote that one of your biggest embarrassments in life is that you're such a poor naturalist. So I think I am, too. I've become a poorer naturalist <laughs> the longer I've been a professor, um, ironically. But if, if you were a poor naturalist, where, when in your life were you inspired to be, you know sort of take that philosophical side to biology and then, you know, more recently get into the, the quantitative and genomic side. Yeah. So I, ironically, I've always been very fascinated by biology. Um, partly, I think, it, for me, it really was evolution as a theory and kind of the, the, the uh, it's abstract nature on the one hand, but it's also, but on the other, it's ability to make these kind of predictions and this kind of um, ability to, to explain the, the life around us. So I very much more came into it with a fascination of that rather than a particular interest in, in any specific kind of organisms or 
because um, in fact, I've also been always been rather poor in the lab. Like, I, I, you know, when I haven't done lab work in, in many years, but as, as, as a student, no one wanted really to be my lab partner because you know my hands. Like, uh, <laughs> you know, so, uh, so, so for for me, I think it it, it was the, like those issues that have lied at the the intersection between kind of more formal theory within evolutionary biology, population genetics, and, and other ways of, of, of modeling evolution, and the kind of the questions that that it raises. And I think, for me, what, what, what made writing this book so much fun is that it reminded me what a fascinating window evolutionary biology is into so many kinds of problems. Um, and I think the genes I view then has been at the, the center of many of uh, our fields wrestling with, with these issues, where there are kind of technical questions about, you know, causality or how you ought to, how you ought to, to, to model uh, genetic interactions or thinking about gene, genes and phenotypes and so on to the very notions of what, if anything, does the evolutionary theory have to say about who we are as humans and, and, and uh, our role in society and, and, and so on. Well, we've been... Um... All three of us saying this phrase, uh, genes I view. So I think it's time to confront what that is, and uh, maybe let's just lay it out. So could you say, you know, for, for a scientist, what does that mean to talk about the genes I view? And perhaps we could just get into replicators and vehicles here right at the very beginning. Yeah, so the, uh, the genes I view of evolution is a way of thinking about um, biology and, and evolution in particular that kind of emerge in the 1960s and 1970s. And often I think you can kind of highlight two authors that really led the way in, in transforming or introducing this way of thinking. So the first is the American George Williams, who wrote in 1966 a book called Adaptation and Natural uh, Selection. One of my favorites all time. <laughs> like it is an incredible book. And I think despite being so well known, it's still underrated in, in, in our field. If you the, the, the sheer amount of insights that, that is crammed into that book on a whole range. Yeah, it's a short book. Yeah, it's a whole short book, whole range of topic. Incredible, um, clearly written, uh, deeply theoretical, without uh, a single line of equations. In a field that often highlights, you know, the importance of Spanish or San Marco for you know improving the way we talk about adaptation. I think adaptation natural selection and George Willen is the one who really raised the bar for how to talk and think about adaptation. But in this, so this, this is a book that was written then, or was published in 1966, primarily written for uh, professional biologists, for, for his colleagues, which is why, also, why it's not well-known kind of outside of uh, academic biology. Yeah, it's not, not user-friendly necessarily. <laughs> no, it, it, it does, it's, you kind of, to get the most out of it, you, you need a, a stronger background. And uh, in, in particularly kind of in, in contrast then with the, the second book uh, that is important, which is the, the Selfish Gene by Richard Dawkins, which builds on many of the same uh, insights, makes a quite a similar argument, but in a much more forceful way and in, in, an, in an even more kind of lucid uh, prose, a, a, a kind of an argument that can be followed by by anyone. Um, and th these books both deal with with several things. But when it comes to the genes I view, is that they, is that they pick up on the insight from um, theoretical population genetics uh, that evolution can be described as changes in uh, allele frequencies over time. Uh, but then they kind of take this one step further uh, to argue that biologists are are always better off thinking in terms of genes rather than in terms of organisms. 
And they do so by kind of combining this idea that you can describe evolution as change in elite frequencies. You combine that with a kind of form of agential thinking taken from the study of, of animal behavior that you think you put yourself in the shoes of the gene and if kind of ask yourself, if I was a gene, what would I do? Um, this then leads into this crucial kind of distinction between replicators and vehicles, which is the, the terminology introduced by, by Dawkins. And here, the kind of the crucial insight or the crucial part of this argument is that the reason why you want to think in terms of genes rather than organisms is that you can think of genes are what is being transmitted uh, essentially intact, barring mutation and recombination from one generation to the next, whereas organisms essentially are ephemeral in the sense that they are a unique combination of the, the genotype, the environment, and, and their interaction. So they're kind of here in one generation, but then gone in the next. Uh, and the only thing that's being transmitted uh, are, are the genes. So here then, replicators are defined by whatever that, it, that is being uh, replicated, which in, in practice has typically meant the uh, nucleic acid, the, the genetic material as we know it. And uh, they, uh, they are kind of the, the, the stars of the show, but then they are housed in this other kind of this other entity, which are known as uh, vehicles in, in Dawkins' terminology, which is the, the entity that actually interacts with the um, with the environment, and the, that are kind of the conventionally then what we, the conventional vehicle would be the uh, the, the individual uh, organism, um, but in principle could could be kind of a cell or, or, or on a more limited circumstances, uh, a group. The, the choice of words here, of replicator and vehicles, that the philosopher who kind of made a similar point that you can, the chief insight here of the new service is this distinction between something that's being replicated and something that houses the replicator. And this is the philosopher David Hull, who liked the word replicator, but preferred the word interactor over vehicle. Uh, and here I think this reveals something kind of a, an interesting distinction between his views and that of Dawkins in the sense that Hull preferred interactor because it emphasizes that organisms interact with the environment and with each other, whereas Dawkins preferred vehicle because it, it is a more mm -hmm. passive mm -hmm. term. It's the thing that the genes are constructing, you know. Exactly. Yeah. So, so, so just another kind of terminology thing. So in, in, Dawkins uses the term selfish gene. You use the term, the phrase uh, genes I view. Would you say those are, are the same thing, essentially, or do, or do you make a distinction between them? I, essentially, they are, they are the same thing, I think. I, I, I take um, the genes I view to be somewhat broader. I mean, I think like George Williams did not talk about selfish genes, and I think, but I think you can recently say that he advocated a genes I view. Uh, historically, I think also that um, selfish genes, I mean, is a, is used to take, to reflect a moment on the term selfish genes, which is a, a, it's both kind of brilliant and, and, and frustrating uh, at the same time. It's, it's a genius phrase that like etches its on to your mind and doesn't seem to be able to, to leave us. At the same time, you know, you use both selfish and gene in somewhat unusual ways. And I think, I think in particular, selfish is used in, in not a very helpful way as it kind of slides between slightly different meanings uh, of, of, of the term. Yeah, it's the anthropomorphizing also. And uh, ironically, it's like a, a super effective meme, right, for thinking about this, this sort of approach. The... Yeah, yeah. And, 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 so, and, and actually, kind of like the, the selfishness that, so I'm, and perhaps we'll come to this, I'm, I'm perfectly happy with, with a 
kind of anthropomorphizing if, if it's done uh, correctly. Sure, yeah, no, I, I am too, mm -hmm. actually, yeah. Um, but I should say that so the kind of the, the selfishness that this, this, the kind of sliding of the definition of selfish that uh, I can find frustrating is that on the one hand, you have this definition of selfishness that selfish genes use it to mean are trying to maximize their own representation in the next generation. And by this definition, all genes are are selfish by, by, by definition. But then you, you run into this issue of, well, what do we do about genes that are uh, kind of cheating the system? So what we now refer to as selfish genetic elements, so meiotic drivers or transposable elements and, uh, and, and so on. What should we call those? And, you know, as a field went through a, for a while, this kind of awkward naming things, so you, we call them parasitic DNA or you call them ultra-selfish genes or... <laughs> and so on before kind of um, even more selfish yeah, yeah. hyper selfish extremely <laughs> ridiculously over the top selfish um this is this is great arvid i think um you know we want to walk through the history of these ideas and then art and i have, have talked about topics like this um with so many different guests that we want to devote a lot of time to that can i get you to just like you did with the selfish selfish gene versus genes i what's the relationship between genes i view and genetic determinism you don't use that genetic determinism term very often in your book, but it is something that you know is, is common parlance in biology now. So, how are you thinking about those two? Yeah, I, I, so I think the the, the, um, the debate around the selfish gene uh, very much reached its peak in the, in in the nineteen eighties, which kind of coincided with a, with a general debate about the role of genes in uh, human human traits and hu human behavior. I think I've always taken that the genes I view is not more committed to genetic determinism than, than any other branch of um, population genetics or, or most of evolutionary theory. The genes I view is interested in the kind of question of understanding uh, when certain kinds of genes or certain alleles can spread in, in a population. And it has often been interested in more logical questions than perhaps the, working out the exact um, mechanism of a particular trait. So early on in the book, I make the distinction between that, in a way, you can think of that there are two broad ways, two schools of thought when it comes to genes that you, and you can kind of distinguish between a kind of logical and a literal tradition. That the, the logical tradition that has been, that is interested in kind of working out the logic of natural selection. How on earth can a trait like this ever evolve? And kind of typical concerns have been things like uh, worker sterility in, in social insects or um, traits that are, that are harmful to the individual but beneficial to to others in the population. How can this work out? And the genes have you worked really quite well here because you, you kind of come you kind of think through scenarios where this can come up. And people who are trained in this tradition tend to be quite comfortable with thought experiments and this kind of like anthropomorphizing. If if I was a gene, I would do so and so. And this clashes then with kind of what we can thought of as more literal tradition, perhaps from the more mechanistic corners of biology. A lot of molecular biology, which are less which are more concerned about kind of carefully describing the interaction between different parts of a system and really working out the kind of the causal links between uh, between them. Now, these two traditions then they come into clash a little bit when when you raise the issue of genetic determinism, which is a kind of an issue about how important are genes in determining or affecting this trait, which largely is a question about about development is a question about previous selective environments and so on. And I think the genes I view isn't 
a tradition not being particularly concerned about that. They're quite comfortable talking about a gene four, but does so in a kind of shorthand way. Um, and in many ways, quite comfortable black boxing how that actually works. Uh, it kind of a, a tendency that is, I think, largely inherited from uh, both population genetics, but also behavioral ecology, which is quite comfortable thinking that this is a trait that's heritable, but how it how that actually works, you're quite comfortable with. So, you know, the genes have you is not particularly committed to, to a form of genetic determinism in any more than any most parts of biology, I, I would say. Great. Okay. Okay. And, and that's a perfect segue to the next question that I have. We're going to do some more, um, you know, history of biology. You talk a lot about R.A. Fisher in the book, and I think his way, I mean, you know, pre-Dawkins, pre-Williams, his way of articulating the roles of genes in biology, and especially adaptation, you think is really important. It's a prominent part of the book, and I think it's a good place to maybe bring that up here. So, he, you quote him, or you wrote about him, that he considered adaptation to be the defining feature of the living world. Um, what did he contribute to Gene's eye thinking? So Fisher, I think, probably is the one in that uh, generation, the person within the modern synthesis generation that contributed the most to uh, the Gene's eye view. You can, in a way, say that a Gene's eye view is uh, implicit in most of population genetics, because you're concerned about changes in allele frequencies. But I argue in the book you know, that there's a strong case to be made that Fisher or Fisher's way of doing population genetics stands out, even compared to, say, Sewell Wright or Javis uh, Haldane. And in particular, I highlight uh, Fisher's, uh, when Fisher introduced the concept of, of variance in, in 1918, he uh, does so by kind of introducing what can be thought of as this kind of expanded notion of what can be thought of as the environment. Uh, and he constructs these models that he's interested in what, what are the effect on, on a trait when you kind of replace one allele with another. So you, you consider a simple uh, diploid organism and that has two alleles and you replace one of them with another. What is the effect on, 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 on the trait? And he wants to, to do his calculations. He wants to see, kind of hold the rest of the, the environment uh, constant in order to make this comparison in a fair way. Uh, and here kind of comes Fisher's kind of crucial contribution then is that he argues that from a gene's eye view, though he doesn't use this term, but essentially that from, from the allele, what considers, what's the environment is not only the, the biotic environment around it, the, the pH of the soil or the temperature in which this organism lives in. The external environment, yeah. Exa exactly. But it's also the rest of the genome in which this allele finds itself, as well as all the other alleles segregating in, in the gene pool. And that this, ought, this also ought to be considered in the environment then. And this is a view of the environment then that comes up clearly both in, in Williams uh, and in Dawkins, that they are, they are interested in um, how a, this, an allele then can, can spread uh, given this uh, environment that it finds itself. So, so not only do... So not only do alleles have to interact well with the external environment, they have to interact well with the rest of the genome that's carried along with them if they're going to find success. Exactly. And, and this kind of com comes up in, in a lot of cases where um, common criticism of the genes I view is how it handles interactions between between genes. Uh, right. So how does it deal with epistasis? Yeah. Exactly. And, and, and the answer often lies then from proponents of the genes I view is that the environment that... Biologists are quite com quite comfortable thinking about genotype environment genotype environment interactions in, in general, and that the genes have used kind of take it one step further that you also ought to include the rest of the genome and the 
and the, and, and the gene pool. So Fisher then has this way of, of approaching uh, the way he did his, his models. And this really comes through then in, 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 in the gene side view that it boils it down to the kind of thinking in terms of this, the average effects of, of these, uh, these alleles. Let's see. So um, I think I think another concept, a sort of historical thing we'd like to touch on just for a minute is the idea of inclusive fitness and Hamilton's rule, which you spend some you know significant time on in the book. So can you just explain for our listeners what what is inclusive fitness and what did Hamilton contribute to that idea? So uh, Hamilton started thinking about the evolution of social behavior already as a graduate student uh, in the nineteen. 19- uh, 60s, and he was concerned about this, the kind of classic problem of um, how traits that are costly to the individual who are performing them, but beneficial to others in the population. How can that uh, evolve? And he made um, fundamental contributions to this, and particularly what is now known as um, inclusive fitness, which is uh, his term, uh, but also in kind of the related concept of, of Hamilton's rule and uh, and kin selection, uh, which are not terms that he came up with, but are closely related to to his work. So inclusive fitness, he he defined as a uh, property of, of an individual. So this the the fitness of an individual uh, to which you take the fitness of an individual to which you augment the um, fitness of other individuals uh, that are focal individuals are is interacting with, and that our focal individual has some causal responsibility for their uh, increase in fitness or their reproduction. You add that to our focal individual. And then you strip that. From that, you then have to subtract the fitness of our focal individual. That is the kind of causal responsibility of of others in the population. So kind of in in, in a way, inclusive fitness is a sum of your direct fitness, uh, so the amount of number of organisms you have, plus the, your indirect fitness, so the fitness of other individuals that you're interacting with that you have some causal responsibility for. And then you have to do this subtraction step at the end to get rid of the, the double counting of reproductive success. Now, so Hamilton thought, again, highly of this concept, and it has been tremendously helpful in many parts of the study of, of social ev- of evolution. Uh, in particular, it's been kind of thought of that it can be a property of an individual that an individual can be thought of as trying to maximize, that you can think of individuals trying to maximize their inclusive fitness. And this is going to be very helpful then in a wide range of questions in in social evolution and and behavioral uh, ecology. Um, And the way that it relates then to to kin selection and Hamilton's rule is that you can then use this concept of inclusive fitness to make sense of traits that are costly to individuals but beneficial to others if by thinking that they will be helpful if these um, interactions are primarily with relatives because the way that this kind of uh, augmenting and subtracting, the the augmenting is is done is that you scale for the relatedness of those individuals. and this is kind of that classic quip from from Haldane that predates Hamilton. You know, who saved your life for two brothers, great cousins, which highlights the importance of genealogical relatedness. And this is also the idea of kin selection that you have selection among relatives. So, so a question, Arvid, to to try to connect what we were talking about with with Fisher and with Hamilton. And I mean, maybe it's just a convenience, but I need. I would be useful for me if you articulated it. You are using making all the arguments in the summaries about Hamilton's role in inclusive fitness kin selection emphasizing individual. But we started just a minute ago with a sort of elegance of Fisher's ideas about alleles holding environment con- in 
uh, sort of constant. Connect those dots for me. So, I mean, uh, Hamilton was one of the the the, the most uh, avid supporters of Fisher, probably there there ever uh, was. He was extremely taken by by Fisher's uh, arguments. Uh, so, what Hamilton wanted to do is kind of develop, in a way, kind of an extension of Fisher's thinking. But he, what he wanted to do is to have a theory about the individual organism. And you can ask yourself, well, why would you want to have a theory about the individual organism? Well, organisms, in many ways, are what stands out in the, in the living world. Organisms are kind of the, the, the ones who are carriers of adaptations. They are the, the, the entity that appears almost as if designed to, for their role. <laughs> and we're, we're organisms, too. So maybe we're a little biased in how we perceive like to be organized. But anyway. <laughs> so, so, so what Hamilton wanted to do is to have a, have a theory that, that to kind of to explain um, that, to explain adaptation. And he wanted to explain in terms of uh, the individual organism. And this, in a way, then kind of leads into some of the interesting tension between a gene's eye view as a concept and inclusive fitness. Because on the one hand, they are intimately linked, largely because of the, the, the individuals involved. The, uh, to, 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 my, to, to my knowledge, the, the very first time the term selfish genes appears anywhere are in the lecture notes that, that, that a young Richard Dawkins prepared when he was, uh, had been tasked to, to sub for his PhD advisor, who was away. Um, and he, he was tasked with delivering lectures on animal behavior. And this was soon after Bill Hamilton's work on inclusive fitness had been uh, published. And uh, if you read uh, the 64 uh, two-part paper, it is quite hard going. So, so Dawkins was young and nervous, so he typed up his notes. And in order then to, to explain Hamilton's idea of inclusive fitness, he, he made the point that you can almost think of genes as they will appear as if they are uh, selfish. Uh, so inclusive fitness is a theory about individuals in, in many ways. And it's a theory that reached kind of a popular audience through the writings of Dawkins, who, who, but who, was, who really wanted to talk about replicators or, or genes rather than organisms. And he is always emphasized in a way that you can think of them as um, two sides of the same coin or two sides of an echo cube. That on the one, like at the gene level, you expect them to try to maximize their own survival to the next generation. And an individual organism, you expect them to try to maximize their in- inclusive fitness and that they will be um, it's just two ways of saying the same thing. Uh, at the same time, if you kind of you, you read Dawkins' writings all the way from days up until recently in, in his, his, his autobiography, you will see this kind of frustration he has with the concept of inclusive fitness, which he, he considers to be kind of this last-ditch attempt to save the individual uh, as a central unit of explanation in biology, rather than kind of fully going down to the level of the gene. Can I articulate what I see maybe as a conflict here? And that is that, um, you know, Hamilton and Hamilton's rules is about, and inclusive fitness is about relationships among individuals, right? But the genes I view is talking about relationships among alleles. And so you could say that, you know, from a from an organismal point of view, yeah, I should lay down my life for what, eight, eight first cousins or whatever. But the collections of alleles in me are related in different ways to all of these potential relatives, right? So some alleles will will find identical copies of themselves in some of my relatives, but not in others. And so it seems like there's a conflict between the sort of personal organismal level and the and the genes I view. And, and the genes I view is complicated, right? Because I have many alleles and how can they all assess the relationships among all of those potential other organisms? They, they can't, right? They have to do it at sort of the organismal level. So how do you resolve that, that, that conflict? 
yes, I think that that is uh, absolutely correct. But there are, of course, there are one exception. So I mentioned at the beginning that Hamilton did not coin the term uh, kin selection. That's a term that was coined by John Maynard uh, Smith in in a kind of a short essay for uh, for Nature, where he contrasted that idea with the idea of, of uh, group selection. Uh, Hamilton always preferred the, the notion of in, inclusive fitness because if you think of it, as you say, most of the time the kind of relatedness between uh, individuals will kind of, for if you consider it at a genetic level, it will be the same. But that is, of course, uh, just on, on average that we share, say, 50% with a, a, a sibling or one-eighth with a, a, a first cousin. But as, as, exactly as you point out, for an individual, at an individual locus, that will may well be different. And this then leads to the idea of so-called uh, Greenbeard genes. So Greenbeards uh, is a term that was coined uh, by Dawkins to describe the, the, an, a thought experiment that was first uh, developed by Hamilton uh, to illustrate that uh, the, this exact point that the genome-wide relatedness is not necessarily the same as the uh, relatedness a specific uh, locus. Thought experiment works like this. Imagine a gene or a set of tightly linked uh, genes that does uh, three things. One, it gives, gives the individual uh, a green beard. Second of all, gives the individual the ability to recognize other individuals with a green beard. And then thirdly, to behave nepotistically towards those uh, individuals. Now, you can use Hamilton's work or inclusive fitness and Hamilton's rule to work out that this kind of uh, behavior, you can still get the evolution of, say, altruism with a kind of green bed mechanism that does not require the the individuals interacting to be genealogical kin. They only need to be um, related at that locus because what matters is not necessarily the genome-wide relatedness but the relatedness at the locus responsible for the social behavior. Now, this was long thought to be kind of too extravagant of a thought experiment. It makes the point well, and it kind of really brings it home. But how on earth could you get that, that kind of complex uh, phenotype uh, from such a simple genetic architecture? We now know that there are some examples, mainly of them in um, social microbes, uh, primarily, uh, where you have kind of uh, cooperative behaviors that are seem to be governed by that kind of uh, genetics rather than a kind of genome. This is like quorum sensing, that kind of thing. So perhaps my, my favorite example comes from um, beers. My favorite example. Beer, beer brewing. Oh, wait. That so, when you, so, something uh, else there. <laughs> <laughs> Different context, not same thing, Art. Um, so one, uh, I mean, yeast has been studied in, in, in the lab for, for a very long time, but it's been studied even longer by uh, people making beers, uh, professionally or, or otherwise. Um, and, and one thing that you often had to do when, when you make beer is that you had to get rid of excess yeast uh, towards the end. And it, you had the yeast kind of coming together in these flocks or clumps uh, that they aggregate together. So this kind of what's known as, as a flocking behavior. It's a form of kind of protective behavior uh, that the yeast strains come together in these clumps where individuals are, they kind of, individuals are at the very center or the core of the clump are kind of physically protected from a hostile uh, environment and this seems like so you can ask yourself well what individual strain which individual yeast cells will come together to form these clumps and it seems that at least uh, sometimes this is governed by this kind of green beard mechanism so if you mix strains of different species or different kind of genetically divergent strains the ones that come together are the ones that share this one 
flocking. Hmm. Uh, oh, interesting. They they sort of cooperate to flock and fall out or something. Exactly. So you, so for example, if you put them in kind of in high alcohol content. Okay. So so here's here's my issue with. And I think all the Greenbeard stuff that you just talked about and that's in the book is is really interesting, and I love. I love the thought experiment. I love the green beard. I mean, that's just such a, an arbitrarily yeah, yeah, trait. To yeah. But, but if I had to think about, you know, the vast majority of my genes and my alleles, they can't possibly be green beards, right? So, so like, what are the important alleles in my body, right? There's got to be things like LDH and, you know, apolipoprotein and all of these things that can't possibly be signaling to one another. And so, so although I understand the sort of intellectual appeal of the green beard argument, it feels like it can't possibly apply to most loci and most alleles. That, 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 that is absolutely correct. We, we, we've gone from a situation where we thought there were zero examples of it to knowing that there are some. Um, so they're not non-existent, but the absolute, you know, it's a, it's a tiny fraction of uh, the genes that behave like this, and it explains a very small fraction of all cooperative uh, behavior. So I would say, you know, to first approximation, you know, genome-wide relatedness is the... Um, or, or another kind of assortment mechanisms is the the, uh, the chief mechanism. Okay, but then if, if that's the case, then then is it um, is it a good idea to go to this granular level of thinking about relationships among alleles in relatives as the driver of inclusive fitness? I, I guess I guess another way of asking that is: Do these alleles have to recognize each other in a green beard sort of way, or can there be inclusive fitness without that? that is traceable to the allelic level. So I said there are two, uh, two things here. So first, do you, do you need to have, can kin selection work without kin recognition? I guess perhaps it's another way of phrasing yeah, the, yeah. the first. I, I imagine the answer is yes. <laughs> the answer is yes. You, 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 need some, so you need some sort of assortment mechanism and it can work regardless. As long as they kind of, they can they interact more with each other, um, that, that, that you can get it to work. Um, so anyway, is it useful to think about uh, genes? I, I would say a lot of time, no. Um, like an inclusive fitness is good that it's, it's, it's thinking about what, what should you expect the individual organism to do in specific situations. And I, and I do think that in inclusive fitness, uh, it is genic in the sense that it emphasizes genetic relatedness easily. That comes easily to, to it. Uh, but it's not necessarily a way of thinking about specific, what, what specific genes are involved or doing things. So instead, it's, it's about uh, uh, thinking about what individuals do. And so my impression is that a lot of time you can, if you, you study a, a group of interacting individuals in, 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 in the field, you can think of the, the kind of the, um, the rule of thumb you can use. So the heuristic you can use is that like, well, so that you can expect the individual trying to maximize their inclusive fitness. What will then kind of are the consequences in this specific scenario? And you kind of completely ignore um, the, the genetics at at hand, but we think about kind of like between individual relatedness and, and so on. So um, I really like the, the Greenbeard section of the book. In fact, this section where we talk about two of the other uh, sort of concepts that have really been a point of focus of genes I view scientists, you know, if we want to build silos and categories and that type of thing, which maybe we shouldn't. But um, in this section of the book, you talk a lot about one of Dawkins' other book, The Extended Phenotype, and just the phenomenon of extended phenotypes, um, and then also selfish genetic elements. So can we touch on those both? Um, do you have a preference of which order? It seems like this transpose on selfish genetic elements may follow more naturally from Greenbeards, but um, what do you prefer? Yeah, yeah. let's start uh, with that. And uh, it's also the, 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 the part of biology that's been closest to 
to my heart is kind of for a long time been my bread and butter to try, try and understand the, the the kind of weird and wonderful world of uh, genomic conflicts and and and, and, and selfish genetic elements. Now, this the kind of empirical study of genomic conflict and self genetic elements. And we should emphasize here we use self-genetic elements to mean genes that have the ability to promote their own transmission from parent to offspring, even if it comes at the expense of the fitness of, uh, or it has no, no, kind of, no positive effects on the individual that, uh, that carries it. It can even have a negative effect on, 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 on the fitness. Um, and you can kind of trace back that the, the, the observation that not all genes are, say, inherited 50, into 50% of of of, of progeny that they seem to occur in in 1995 and 9% of them that has been recognized for, for for over a century the first kind of recognition that we, this perhaps may be described as parasitic or, or selfish goes back to before uh, both uh, Williams and, and Dawkins but I would say that the introduction of kind of a the vocabulary of the selfish gene and these kind of competing replicators and a vehicle, that organism as this mere vehicles or survival machines, this kind of emphasis on kind of almost like the social life of replicators, I think really helped kind of stimulate the interest in thinking about these kind of phenomena and provided a framework to make sense of them. Um, and we now know that there are a lot of, uh, this is kind of really diverse set of examples of, of um, genomic conflict and selfish genetic Elements and I think the genes have used. It's a very. This is really kind of where it com- really comes into to its own and to think of it. A lot of this phenomenon cannot really be made sense of strictly from an individual organism point of view. That you need alternative frameworks. The genes have used. I think is a is a really uh, powerful way, a really helpful way to think about it. Um, in, in my experience, here, here is really where it kind of and genes have used comes naturally to uh, researchers in the field, even if they they don't really have a a horse in the race about the, the larger conceptual uh, issue. Can can we talk a little bit about this? Um, one of my favorite sort of statistics and, and just uh, quirks of biology: fifty percent of the human genome and eighty percent of the corn genome is comprised of transposons. So these these are famously, you know, the jumping genes that Barbara McClintock um, got got excited about. Connect connect all of that for us, Arvid. I mean, why? How did the genomes of these two organisms and probably a lot of organisms come to be comprised of all of this stuff? What's a transposon? Yeah, that is the, the the incredible question, right? And and very much that, that was the question at the heart of my my PhD thesis. This, this observation that some genomes are completely littered with transposons, um, and they have really large genomes, and then you have other species, often quite closely related, that where the transposons are, are much rarer and the genes are are much smaller. So what on earth is going on here? So so I think so. Transposons are, as you say, these self replicating. Uh, Genes they have the ability to, in one way or another, make copies of themselves and then insert into new locations in the genome. So this is a way then they kind of increase in copy number within the um, within within the genome. But we often call them selfish because as they move around, jump as they say, they they land in the middle of other genes or close to other genes, so they kind of disrupt the, the expression of those genes. And the and the bizarre, the extra bizarre element here, I just want to you know for people that aren't familiar with these, the the alleles, the sort of changes that we've been talking about with allele frequencies in other contexts, it has to happen across generations predominantly. The amazing thing about these transposons is that even within generations, you can get the bouncing of these sequences, you know, throughout the genome as cells are undergoing mitosis. So you're getting massive overrepresentation, huge changes in the composition of genomes within generations as well as across 
generation. Exactly. So, and within within an organism, so if this happens in in somatic cells, this can lead to. Uh, so, in, in humans, it's been linked to various diseases, including cancers, that can be can be caused by. Because in, in on, on some level, this is a, a form of of mutation. That, uh, but it's also then that if you think of this as a ter- form of mutation, in a way, this leads into why can they be so common sometimes? And part of the answer, and I, I don't think we have a good answer to to really explain what the, at a detailed level why it varies. We know some of the key parameters, and part of it is that the what can be thought of as the distribution of the fitness effects. So if you t- take all uh, the transposons, say, in a genome or it, that are segregated in, in, a, in a population, and you, you kind of tally it up and say, like, how many of them have, you know, zero impact on, on fitness and how many of them have, like, a, a, a really negative one or some of them probably also going to have a, a positive one. Some of them are going to end up being under positive uh, selection. If you, if you tally that up, I think you will find in, in, in a lot of organisms, most of the time, transpersons are um, neutral or, or slightly deleterious, uh, which means that they, they uh, kind of a really important factor that's going to determine their or govern their, their frequency is, uh, is drift. So you can kind of get quite far if you do this kind of large scale phylogenetic comparisons just by considering uh, things like effective population size or um, uh, in, in plants, if you consider things like mating system, whether, plant, whether they are self-fertilizing or whether they are, are, are outcrossing. So that's going to be part of the answer. Um, how, um, so, and this is kind of just consistent with that the re- really large genomes are, are um, found um, not in bacteria and, and other things with huge effective population sizes in terms of really streamlining uh, genomes. Um, but uh, then, then of course, there's going to be m- many other uh, interactive factors uh, as well, and um, and I think it is still an open question. And, and you just, just kind of add another layer that that not only does copy number of transposons va- varies a lot between species, so does what kind of transposons. So you can kind of divide up transposons into different kinds depending on how they tra- uh, transpose. So both the human genome and say the, the maize genome is full of transposons, but the kind of transposons that they have are, are quite different. Yeah, see, this is this is one of those areas of um, the, these points of interface between different separate magisteria, to use one of Gould's uh, terms, not meant in this context at all, but similar, really. Um, this is one that's always been really interesting to me because you're making the point that exactly where these selfish genetic elements insert in the genome because of the functionality that they have that manifests in the phenotype, it's completely different kinds of outcomes. So to continue on that thread really, really briefly, we talked about the, pos- you know, the, the distribution of fitness effects among different transposons. If lots of them have no fitness effects and some of them have many, I mean, whenever we take that snapshot is arbitrary and evolutionary time, there's going to have been selection to get rid of those sorts of things, right? If there's strong fitness, negative fitness effects, a lot of that's going to go away. Maybe that's why a lot of these are negative. But the, the, the point here is this is a real point of interface between the mechanics, the details by which phenotypic variation comes to be, and the ideas of selfish genes. And, and just to, to build on that, one of my kind of favorite examples, I think, in, in, in the study of genomic conflict, that really highlights both the strength and the weakness of the gene side view is the example of cytoplasmic male sterility in plants. So uh, most flowering plants are hermaphroditic, so you can reproduce both through male and female reproductions by producing pollen or producing uh, ovules. Uh, 
Now, in, in, uh, in, in firing plants, you have your genetic material in three locations, in, in the nucleus, which is where half of it is, is biparentally inherited, half from mom, half from dad. But then you have two organellar genomes, typically. You have the mitochondrial genome and the chloroplast uh, genome, both which are typically, most of the time, uh, maternally inherited, only transmitted through, through the mother. So if you, again, so if you adopt the gene side view here, so if you, if you put yourself in the shoes of a mitochondrial gene, you, are strictly, you know you're strictly uh, maternally inherited. So if you're in a hermaphrodite, you, any pollen that is being produced is essentially, from your point of view, a complete waste of resources, regardless of how, how successful the individual hermaphrodite that you are in is at siring offspring through pollen, you, it doesn't improve your chances of being transmitted. So from your point of view, you would rather have this individual invest all these resources into uh, female reproduction, into production of ovules. So you can imagine. So, so imagine then that you have a, a gene or an allele that can knock out pollen production. That, that would be really beneficial from, from a mitochondrial point of view. And that is exactly what we see. There's loads of, there are several examples of mitochondrial genes in flowering plants that does this. There's a sort of male sterility gene. So they can uh, prevent the plant from producing pollen, and the, which means that they, they're guaranteeing their own transmission. Because now all the production is through the ovules, and they have transmitted every single time. And this has led to this really fascinating thing of, on the one hand, you can study the kind of the arms of the coevolution between, on the one hand, is male sterility genes in the mitochondria, and then nuclear genes that restore male fertility, so called, so called restore genes. And you can do all sorts of exciting things about doing different kinds of crosses and the way you can reveal how this, how intimately linked these pairs tend to be. So I, I think this is, this is a nice, it makes kind of perfect sense from, from a gene side view that, you know, if you're maternally inherited, it's in your interest that the kind of female side reproduction is what is getting most recently invested to it. It has very little to say, however, on why there are few or no examples of chloro, chloroplast male sterility, so genes in the chloroplast that makes hermaphrodite into female. The, from a gene side view, there should be no difference between these situations, but there clearly is. There are loads of examples of kind of mitochondrial ones, very few chlor or none of chloroplast. So here, these are and kind of population genetics more generally has little to say. And I think the answer is going to lie into think the difference between what these organelles are doing and kind of the cellular biology and, and so on, what can, how this can yeah, be achieved. Evolutionary legacy and whatever it means to be a chloroplast versus a mitochondria. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All sorts of explanations, but it's not come from this kind of simple logic, although it is really helpful in one case. And I think it, it has really helped us there, but it also highlights the, the difficulty that it can't help us all the time. mentioned this phrase, the paradox of the organism, by which I think you meant that uh, if we have all of these selfish genetic elements that are looking out for their own interests inside the body, inside the genome, and uh, that might cause lots of sort of negative effects at the organismal level. So cost to organisms to benefit individual alleles that have control over some resource or some mode of transmission, then how do we get good working organisms? And that seems actually to be a really kind of crux issue here that we should we should discuss, right? Because because to me, what I would say is that well, that reflects um, that in fact genes are embedded in these complex sets of regulatory networks that that emerge at different levels, at the genetic level, at the cellular level, at the whole organismal level, and at all of those levels, there are you know important systems that are acting on the organism and that are making decisions, if you will, about what the organism should do and how its physiology should run. 
And so why not focus on that sort of integrated level of a system as the important unit rather than the genetic level that we've been talking about? Yeah, first of all, I think, yeah, you articulate the, the so-called paradox of organism perfectly. Why, given all these opportunities for uh, conflicts within, uh, whether in forms of genetic conflicts or the spread of cancer lineages and so on, why is it that individual organisms most of the time function as these kind of cohesive uh, entities that you uh, can almost ignore what goes on on the inside and you will be you'll be fine if you're interested in, in as far as phenotypic evolution is concerned so that that that, that is the, the the paradox uh and i've kind of become interested in for for two reasons so one is that when you when you study selfish genetic elements you often learn also that on the one hand you have these genes that have the ability to promote their own transmission at the expense of other genes or or or, or of organismal fitness but then you also have other genes that have often evolved the ability to uh, suppress the uh, the spread of these selfish genetic elements. Whether you, whether you have uh, genes that can silence the expression of transposons, where you have the, the restorers of, of male fertility in the case of side male uh, sterility, and of course you also have various mechanisms to suppress, uh, for example, the spread of or proliferation of cancers within uh, in in, in multicellular organisms. So on the one hand, I kind of I've been fascinated about about that this kind of molecular mechanism of that, but second of all, it uh, goes back to this. What in a way it was probably one of my most kind of transformative insights in in retrospect, uh, which may seem trivial. But when when, when I first uh, when I learned about the the major transitions, the idea of the kind of that the history of life can be characterized by these major transitions, this kind of coming together of entities that were previously able to survive and reproduce on, on their own can now only do so as part of a larger uh, whole. So we think of kind of the origins of the, the first uh, genome, and then within cells, you have multiple genomes, like in the nuclear and the mitochondrial genomes that are kind of the origin of the eukaryotic cell, origin of multicellularity, uh, and even kind of evolution of uh, particularly new social uh, groups and, and, and societies. And that you can kind of think of that in each of these Transitions, you're kind of faced with the same conceptual issue of kind of what prevents selfish behavior from destroying the common good that can be achieved through uh, cooperation. That are kind of the, the integrity of an individual multicellular organism is contingent on the cooperation of the uh, uh, constituent parts. Or as kind of Leo Bass uh, put it in the evolution of individuality, that individuality is a derived character. That kind of the organism as we think of it today is itself a product of uh, evolution. So here, then, kind of the in a way, then, so what you describe that that you have genes and, and cells that are now part of this really complex uh, uh, systems that, that are kind of hard to see what you can be gained from falling down at um, the, in, in the individual parts. And I think that that's a very kind of very fair criticism of it. The I think to me the, the kind of the benefit of it is that. You can kind of, if you think of it from this kind of transition point of view, from kind of bottom up, you think you, you kind of turn it into a problem of, of social evolution, so which means that you can kind of come at it with the tools that we have developed to study conflict cooperation at other levels to understand it inside of how these kind of complex systems evolved in the first place and, and think of it in terms of that. So it's not... I think so. I think that is a very productive way of thinking. It's of course not mutually exclusive in any way from uh, from other uh, approaches, but I think that's kind of why why why, why I think the, the paradox is, is such a uh, fun and, way. And just to be sure, I just 
Sorry, it's just be sure I understand what you're talking about. So you're, you're suggesting that these sort of higher level emergent phenomena of like regulatory networks and physiology are, um, we can think of those as like uh, social aspects of underlying individual elements that still are the individual genes and the individual alleles. I, th I think that that, that that is a way of thinking that, that still has a lot of uh, under-realized uh, unrealized, uh, potential. So I think in theory, I think that that, Ought to be a good way of thinking about it, and and there are attempts to, to do it. I think they often tend to be rather abstract, and and not kind of quite light on empirical detail. Uh, and but I think here is is one of those cases where, kind of like the uh, mitochondrial chloroplasts conflict or lack thereof, is that by you need to combine I think these kind of or kind of conceptual tools of, of social evolution with a deep understanding of the, the empirical system uh, at hand. Because uh, on some level, I do think that these kind of the gene interactive networks are on some level another example of a social group and that that is a productive way of approaching the problem. But um, I, I also can't point to, to the really good examples of where that has been done in, in, in a meaningful uh, way. and I both have a very sort of systems view that I was trying to articulate about, you know, complex systems being important units. And many of those complex systems use this tool that we call the genome, right? So we view genes much more as, as tools that are, you know, really important repositories of historical information that can be drawn on in the right, in the right moment and used at the right time. But like the sort of key thing is something about this, these emergent larger properties of systems. We were so interested in Nick Lane's ideas about the origin of life because his his idea essentially is that metabolism came first. That um, that you know life arose as these sort of proto units that discovered how to use ATP and to to generate ATP and then to use it to drive metabolic processes. And that those sort of early proto units later evolved nucleic acids as a way to to store information more more reliably. And so I think I think there's an alignment there in in the sense of like that that very process of the origin of life sort of places genes in what we view as their appropriate context of being being useful tools but not necessarily prime drivers of 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 the process. So I don't know what do you, what do you what do you think about that parallel? So 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 would you, when, when, you, when you think of say a system that is it's better to think about it in terms of this kind of higher level properties do you think is that a pragmatic view that like it's like you could like or sorry do you, do you think that like in principle we could explain it from a, a more reductionistic way from kind of bottoms up but we're like we're better off talking about it from 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 this way from kind of higher level properties I think we're better off, and that's in part because there's so many sort of emergent properties of these higher level systems that define really important things about biology. And I know, I know, emergent properties is a frustrating concept, and a lot of people ob object to it. But, but nevertheless, I, I think, you know, th those systems have properties that you could not predict from these lower level things called genes. Even though, like for sure, different alleles can influence the properties of those those higher level networks. I'm generally quite, really quite sympathetic to to that view because I mean I think on, on the one hand I think you know 
it's never going to be a quantum theory of baseball, right? They're like, <laughs> yeah, that's a yes. <laughs> Alas, <laughs> give it time. Give it time. There's a lot of money in baseball. There may very well be. <laughs> yeah, and, and the Atlanta Braves are going to be the ones that figure it out too. So, but but but, but like nothing in baseball is like incompatible with physics, right? So like it's like it's completely. So maybe maybe one day we will be, but like in the meantime, it's not a very useful way of going about it. Um, and 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 I think perhaps one. Thing I, I do think in, in biology that is that we, we should be quite comfortable with having multiple perspectives at, at, at approaching the same kind of questions. So I think it's important to, to allow that because depending on how, depending on your perspective, different things stand out and you're going to learn different things about it. But that being said, we also need to spend some time kind of thinking about how this different, how they hold together, how they different fit, how they how they fit together, because otherwise you run the risk of just having models that are. Um, you never talk to each other and they kind of may end up being kind of mutually incompatible uh, with each other. But I mean, even in like in the, the positive evolutionary theory that I've been interested in is to take um, behavioral ecology, which has relied a lot on optimization theory, uh, which is a concept that was rejected quite a long time ago in population genetics, that it, nothing really has ever maximized things. So you just kind of, you, you may reach an equilibrium more, but otherwise it's a, a, a dynamics. Both of these approaches have been tremendously helpful in, in, in our study of, of, of evolution, but on some level, they are also more or less incompatible in the sense that with the, the assumption about how the underlying processes work. And then like, I, I am always of two minds about how to concern we ought to be about that and the kind of similar issues that we have different kinds of, of, of framework that are both helpful that, um, yeah, how much time should, you, how, how much time is worth devoting to try to reconcile it? Or is that just, is better to to focus on 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 the real issues at hand, which is studying these things empirically. Which is as much of a uh, as much as I'm interested in in theory. At the end of the day, I think I think evolutionary biology is about understanding living organisms and natural populations, and maybe that's what we should be, do, be doing. So, so I mean, at that at that broad level, we are all in agreement. I mean, we, we wouldn't be having a conversation if if we weren't. But I I still am not quite sure whether I'm hearing you say that integration is possible. In biology, something you said just a minute ago made it sound like we'll do us and you do you, and we're still going to make progress. But the NSF has massively invested in integration, right? In the last decade, I mean, you know, a lot, a lot of people probably don't even like that. I personally think it's fantastic. But um, do you think that biology is integratable, and is there any value in doing it at all? I, I, I definitely think it is, and I think it's, it's worth. I do think it's worth the effort. I mean, I think integrated biology is one of those terms I've never really sure what it means we may no nobody is <laughs> nobody is some places even name departments after that and i'm, I'm never entirely sure what the, uh, yeah like, and i like as, as opposed to what kind of bio like, yeah, I, I never really understood the term but that being said uh, tr trying to see common principles across different domains of of biology i, I think it's it's hugely important especially because biology states is such a large field relying on uh, on various really quite different kinds of methods and, and systems. And this and, and I think this is of course very true for biologists at large. But even you just take evolutionary biology, which on some level spans everything from paleontology to, to plant ecology, from fly genetics to to ecosystem dynamics. And uh, like you used to go to an evolution meeting, people do really do quite different stuff. And there at least we, we ought to really try to to, to, to integrate. Uh, well, so to, to what end? I mean, I'm, I'm interested in your personal perspective on, let's pick a topic. 
what, what's the one rallying cry that all biologists could get behind? The thing that we're going to integrate. Everybody's going to sort of drop their silos and you know play play well together, and we're all going to focus on a single thing. What would you advocate advocate for? Oh, uh, so so I, I don't think I, I don't know if there's meaningful to think about one single thing. So perhaps uh, so, so one kind of integration that I found really quite fascinating recently or over the last few years is this kind of issues in. Um, so I study genomic conflicts and, and kind of the, the, those kind of empirical systems. What, if anything, do they have in common with people who study conflict cooperation in social insects, for example? That you can kind of see that you have kind of conceptually similar issues of that you can kind of talk about um, conflict suppression and the selfish behavior and so on. Uh, and we use the empirical systems are very different, and we use often quite different mathematical tools to do to do it. How how when is it meaningful to try to like come up with a com- common vocabulary to describe these different kinds of systems or co- common mathematical tools to describe these systems, or when is doing so means that we are ignoring the the kind of the interesting biological differences and in order just to try to shoehorn it into some sort of neat framework that uh, that's meant to to apply everywhere and, and all that it really amounts to is just saying that this will spread when the benefits are greater than the costs. And we haven't really learned that much at the end of the day. As I, so here, in press, this is a, it's, a, it's a narrower kind of of, in, of integration. Yeah. Um, well, and that's understandable because, as you say, evolutionary biology is, is just evolutionary biology is fractured. And then we can include medicine. And, you know, biology is so ridiculously broad that integration even with it, within its subdisciplines is non-trivial for sure. I, I honestly, though, expected you to say... <laughs> and selfish, but you wrote you wrote so much about it, and most everybody else that we've been talking about has focused on it. Why not adaptation? Why not adaptation as the point of focus? Oh, so I mean, so uh, that, that 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 I can buy. I think I mean I think adaptation is one of the the most important uh, issues uh, in, in in biology. It's clearly not uh, every, everything, uh, and whether it can be the unifying feature like that. I'm, I'm not so I'm not sure exactly what that would look like. I think like when it comes to adaptation, I think it would be interesting to see different approaches to it being integrated, perhaps like you know the uh, integrations between you know inclusive fitness me- methodology and that like at the end of the day, if you inclusive fitness, you usually what you get at the end of the day is kind of like a directional change. Will this trait will, will this spread or not in, in, in the population over time? Which you know, quantitative genetics is historically concerned about estimating strength of selection and, and, and its and its response. So there I think like those two both concerned with adaptation, there I think integration would be really helpful. Uh it would be also be interesting to like to an extent that, that can be integrated with um genomic approaches to the study of adaptation. You know, interested in kind of what not like what are the the, the genomic regions involved. So that, that 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 kind of integration I think uh is is helpful. But uh, I'm not sure I would go so far to say. It. I think as a, I think perhaps the, maybe I'm adaptation plays a huge role in the history of the genes I view because it's, it's a way that takes adaptation to be the central problem that we should try to explain, uh, and and that like that, and that's why it's often quite com- comfortable with um, thought experiments and just ignoring other kinds of details in order to understand how something like this could, could evolve. I'm, I'm sympathetic to to that tradition. Both because it's, it's historically has been very strong, but also because I think there's very much like I think organisms are what makes biology unique, and one of the most defining features of, of organisms is as adaptation. So I think adaptation deserves 
a, a, a very central role in, in anything we do. But of course, there's all this other interesting things that has nothing to do with uh, adaptations. Oh, and, sure. And, and, uh, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, the, the quirks of what else it means to be alive on Earth. But the thing about adaptation that I think is appealing and the reason that it, it is always in the background of our conversations with physicists, neuroscientists, I mean, you know, the, the gamut of biologists that we talk to on the show is that it really is about the regulation of information and energy, right? It's, it's what distinguishes life from non-life and the processes by which all the diversity of life came to be. It's not to say that other evolutionary and ecological many processes don't intervene. You know, we talked to Scott Carroll about his favorite topic about, you know, just sort of vicariant events in the past. You know, chance strongly influences things. Well, yeah, of course, but still his interest in chance largely has to still do with how we have this adaptation versus that adaptation. Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, I, and I think I mean, evolution straddles that interesting balance that like Mendelian genetics and everything makes it so tantalizingly close so that you can come up with these kind of simple rules about how everything ought to behave. But then at the end of the day, it's a historical science. So uh, all sorts of things happens that you know, couldn't have anticipated. Yeah, sorry, that was that was a little bit of a of a soapbox about things, but we, we, went, <laughs> we went in an abstract direction or it was in an unscripted direction. Um, I think let's let's try to bring it let's try to connect these um, different perspectives by juxtaposing a couple of different thinkers. And one of our very first guests, I think it was episode number two, was Dennis Noble. And Dennis was on Richard Dawkins' dissertation committee, which you know he he told us I had no idea until he, he said it. But he has a couple of really neat books that that Art and I like a lot. And um, in one of them, I think it's Music of Life, he quotes one of Dawkins' most famous passages. In selfish gene, which which you've done. I mean, you've quoted both of these things. And so, for for the listeners, I'm going to read both of these. Um, Dawkins' version is now they genes swarm in huge colonies, safe inside gigantic lumbering robots, sealed off from the outside world, communicating with it by tortuous indirect routes, manipulating it by remote control. They are in you and me. They created us, body and mind, and their preservation is the ultimate rationale for our existence. Very few scientists write that way. That's, that's pretty amazing. He has a, a gift with language. So then Dennis takes that text and the physiologist that he is changes a, a lot of it. Now they genes are trapped in huge colonies, locked inside highly intelligent beings, molded by the outside world, communicating with it by complex processes, through which blindly as if by magic, function emerges. They are in you and me. We are the system that allows their code to be read. And their preservation is totally dependent on the joy we experience in reproducing ourselves. We we are the ultimate rationale for their existence. So that that's fun. I mean, it's rare to see two super impactful biologists use such poetic language to make their cases. Um, but you know, it seems what what is it about Dennis's sentiment that doesn't work for you, or how how do you feel about Dennis's perspective in general? So I, I think the, the the really helpful thing about putting them next to each other is that in a way it highlights the insight that I think that the genes I view is a it's a very helpful perspective, but because there is no way that you can kind of distinguish between these two ways of writing by coming up with some super clever experiment or like ingenious mathematical model that no one has thought of. I don't think that's just what's going to settle this. I think both of these are. Is a ways of thinking that emphasize different things. So I think for me is that I take the the first one, the longest one, to be a more productive or helpful way to approach a lot of the questions that I've been interested in. And of course, this kind of reveals my bias in that the questions that I have been interested in are those related to 
to social evolution, to, to specifically kind of study with genomic conflicts and other kinds of um, s- social evolution. And there, I think that kind of way of thinking is more helpful. But so overall, it's kind of a, a pragmatic thing for, for, for me more, 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 than, more than anything. What is a helpful way if you want to understand this? Okay, um, uh, fair. I mean, I, um, I, I, I take that point. I still go back to the, is it possible that it, it, to do integration? Yes, it's possible to do integration. And yet we have, we have different aims. It's always going to be the case that there's details within these different magisteria that require you know, a lot of work. I, I, I definitely agree with that. Um, but but the one the the one piece the one piece that I I always get hung up on and and Art's gonna ask something about Dennis Walsh another guest that we we had on um, but a different different point that I'm gonna raise when we talked to Dennis if anybody wants to go back and listen to that episode what struck him and what what has resonated with me is that when when Fisher and the other architects of the modern synthesis came up invented statistics by all intents and purposes and did some amazing things. That has progressed biology so far, and yet in the ensuing years, biology has come to be revealed to be a quite different thing than what biology used to be. It doesn't quite seem that the, the Fisherian descendants are embracing the entirety of, of biology. And so how we get to integration when there's not the full embrace of all the diversity of, of what comprises biology, I, I'm confused. Yeah, so I think that there, there, there are a couple of things here. So first, of course, the so Fisher's descendants are only a small part of the kind of general, even even if you want to call it the received view of of, of evolution biology of population genetics. You know, Sewell Wright also has had really quite different views on, on many things and had a much stronger emphasis on integration between um, kind of more, much more of a systems view in a way. The emphasis on complex interactions that can't be handled by simple focus on. Uh, on on alleles, um, the the issue that you know that we like the, the the kind of biology today is very different from what it was then. Yes, that 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 is very true. Um, and 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 whether we are doing a good enough job at integrating this into our, our core theories, of course, has been. I mean, ever since the term modern since it was coined, there's been complaints that specific areas were not given the the credit that it deserves. I, I think that. Kind of evolution has proven to be remarkably, in some ways, remarkably uh, flexible in integrating things. Uh, but also, there is, of course, kind of a cultural thing of what it doesn't really consider to be that uh, important. And, and, and maybe some of these issues, insights from physiology are included there. Um, but uh, yeah, here, I think I am probably more in the the, the orthodox view on, on, on things that uh, uh, um, I, I must admit. Un- un- understandably. I mean, the, the difficulty with biology is there's so much to cover. How, how do we be, how, how do we educate, you know, the undergraduates and, and even in high school to get into your brain all of the things that are necessary to, you know, walk towards the synthesis? That's, that's, a very, that's a really difficult thing. The development of biology has been all about its diversity. I mean, how, how, do, you, how do you not confront that? But then to pile on, you know, the many different conceptual ways to, to think, to get to synthesis. Yeah. Tricky. Let let me ask one more diversity question and then we'll ask you just a couple of wrap up things here at the very end. Um, And and let me articulate a particular thing about genes, which I don't know, you may or may not agree with, but um, it feels to me like the, the primacy of genes and alleles in, in the genes I view of the world comes in part from thinking about, um, 
you know, jeans and alleles is sort of the ultimate historical artifacts, right? They're the sort of oldest things that have been produced by processes in the fat in the past that are now in the present and having effects in in the present. And um, in in our talks with Dennis Walsh and with Scott Turner, they they raise these ideas of sort of um, putting genes into the context of a broader set of what they call memory tokens. I don't know if you've you've run across this phrase, but you know they're they're sort of things from the past that influence the present that that come in many different ways from the past. And those include things like epigenetic marks, um, you know, maternal factors that moms put into eggs, uh, ecological inheritance, uh, so offspring inheriting things that their parents or their ancestors have, have built or done done to the environment. So, so what do you think about, why, why not just take a broader view of, of memory tokens and all of these influences from the past, and why, why give genes primacy as opposed to some of these other historical influences? So I think there is a minor irony lurking here somewhere about that uh, with, the, with the concept of replicators, the important reason why Dawkins preferred that was to kind of free it from the material concerns of kind of that how inheritance happened to work here in terms of nucleic acid, that he preferred the term replicated to gene for the very reason that it emphasized that this kind of information that can get copied and not kind of in terms of kind of genes or DNA, even though that's kind of how, how it happens to work here. And that, and, but he wanted the concept to be to be broader. So I think, I mean, I think, so when you want to kind of expand this thing, notion of, of heredity, other things that are faithfully transmitted, there are one, I think this is an empirical issue of how often and how reliable that happens. But if we, we can kind of put that to the side for the moment, let's assume there are other things that are as kind of or reliably or faithfully transmitted as um, nucleic acid is. You cannot, there hasn't been much in terms of in really trying to incorporate that into kind of the replicated concept or kind of how, how it handles it there. Because I think there, I think there is some part of potentially interesting integration to be done. Um, but ultimately, though, I would say that kind of like how much of a concern is this kind of other forms of inheritance to a gene side view will depend on the empirical question of how important they actually turn out to be in, in the long run. Because I think even strong proponents of other forms, you know, whether it's maternal effects or selection marks or other kind of cultural inheritance or um, what form it may take, I see, I see, I see little evidence that it, that is, is as reliably as, as genetic material. But so, so you think they're not a, as important? Is that be, because they're not as transmitted as faithfully as as genes or alleles? I think that I think that that will be part part of it. Uh, yeah, for sure. Uh, but I mean, I think that that is an empirical question, so I'm very open to, to to revise that. I, I I see what you're saying, and I think I, I may agree with that at some level. Um, just just one quick point about sort of like time decays and time over which things have influence. Like I, I feel like, you know, epigenetic marks in many ways they're transmitted almost as faithfully as as genes. They just are much more flexible and changeable on shorter time scales. And so these feel like sort of different memory tokens that are tuned to different time scales of historical influence, and that that actually is a key thing that gives organisms, this, these units, the ability to have uh, adaptive phenotypes that work well in their current environments. Yeah, may, maybe even evolvability, right? I mean... <laughs> and so, so, I mean, I think, so I have two, 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 two reactions. One, I think it's like, a, a, my, my gut reaction is perhaps the unfair one, where it feels like yeah, that might well be true, but then that is often hype up with a lot of big implications. I think perhaps the, the, the interesting way is like, also say, say that is the case, which may well be. 
how, to what extent can we then use our traditional tools of population genetics that, that model this kind of methylation? But it probably would be something with a very rapid back mutation rate, because like, as I understand it, these kind of signals then kind of, you lose them or they revert back to, to the original state. So can you take kind of the, the, the frameworks we have, incorporate this new empirical information and, and, and kind of still handle it? Because I mean, population genetics has been able to incorporate, I mean, incorporate all of these kind of sorts of kind of um, molecular details into its framework. Perhaps the best examples are models about GC bias and kind of kind of yeah, kind of which is that it's wasn't something that um, any of the architects of population genetics knew anything about, but modern science do, and we can incorporate them into to those frameworks. To what extent can we do that with uh, these kind of methylation marks? I don't know, and, and, and people are maybe are doing it already. Arvid, this, this this has been great. I mean, you know, thank thank you so much for talking to us about the book. Um, there's two of us here that are confronting you with very difficult questions, rapid fire. Um, it's, it takes a special person to do that, so we we really appreciate your uh, your willingness to do this and your generosity um, with time. I think we could probably go on for another three or four hours. We really do have so many questions. Um, <laughs> We'd have to do it over beers in a bar somewhere, though. Let's so. <laughs> not, because exactly, uh, John Maynard Smith wouldn't be happy with us doing a bit in the in the current way. We need to have um, a beer if we're going to proceed. So um, we always wrap up with our guests. Uh, just it's a broad question. Take it as you will. Any direction. What else would you like to say? What did we not touch? Um, what else about the book do you think is important to get across? Anything else to share? So I think there are kind of two, at least two schools of thoughts when it comes to how scientists or biologists should should approach the uh, their, their history. Uh, when I started, it's before I started writing this book. A, a colleague of mine is in computational biology described evolutionary biology as a, as a field obsessed with his own history, and and I know that there are some colleagues of ours that kind of are more of the attitude that reading rots the mind, that like you shouldn't clog, kind of clog your thinking with. Uh, what other people have done, because then that that means you, you won't be able to make any original kind of contributions. Wow, <laughs> I am very much of the the, 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 the the schools of thought that think uh, knowing your history is important. So, uh, if anything, I hope that uh, th th this can be kind of um, demonstrates the the, the 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 if not the importance, at least the the excitement of um, learning the the history of or modern history of 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 the field and. Um, I, I kind of hope that the, the book can be read with, with that in mind. Excellent. Well, great. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks, we really Arvid. appreciate it. Really fun conversation. So. Yeah, yeah, it was really fun. And uh, yeah, as you say, hope we can do it over base at some point in the future. Yeah, yeah. we will yeah, do. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you like what you hear, let us know via Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or leave a review on Apple Podcast. And if you don't, we'd love to hear that too. All feedback is good feedback. On the next episode, we talk to Michael Perugonen about crop domestication and how new genomic techniques and concepts could help us produce something called super green rice. There really has been an explosion of both data and analysis, both on the genetic side and on the archaeological side that informed all of this. The protracted process is, a, is, a, is, is interesting because, yeah, I also thought the idea was crops evolved really quickly, right? You apply strong selection and voila, you have a crop evolved uh, before your very eyes. But it turns out that for many species, 
that probably is not the case. Thanks to Steve Lane, who manages the website, and Ruth Demery and Brad Van Paradin for producing the episode. Thanks also to Kyle Smith, Jordan Greer, Natasha Damright, and R.B. Smith for helping to produce this episode. Keating Shimeri produced our awesome cover art. Thanks to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida, the College of Humanities and Sciences at the University of Montana, and the National Science Foundation for support. Music on the episode is from Poddington Bear.